morning. If you have your Bibles, we'll be taking a look at Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 25 in just a moment. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Brandon Zimbauer. I started my undergraduate studies at Lock Haven University in 2012 in the fall. I have been attending Big Woods since then, all throughout my undergraduate studies. Um, I was lucky to grow up in a Christian home with two God-fearing parents who raised me to love the Lord. However, as I was growing up, I had a head knowledge of God. I understood who God was, and I could give you all of the answers that you wanted to hear, but my heart wasn't really in it. I didn't love God. Well, over the course of the years here at Lock Haven, God grew me, and he gave me a love for him. All of that leading into where I am today. I'm currently a math teacher. It's what I went to school for. However, um, my first year out of school teaching, I started to realize that the reasons that I had gotten into teaching weren't coming to fruition. I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I felt trapped by just the state system as a whole. And I started to realize, you know, this isn't working out. So in a time of reading scripture and praying, um, God hit me with a big rig out of my blind side and said, what about vocational ministry? And I went, all right, (laughs) I guess that's good. And that brings me to where I am in front of you today. God has been doing amazing work in not just my life, but in the lives of many young men in this body So before we get into our text this morning, let's turn to God and ask him for help in understanding what he has for us. Let's pray. Father God, you are incredible. Lord, you are so much above anything that we can comprehend, Lord. But Father, we turn to you this morning. We ask for your help in our understanding of what you would have for us. Lord, help us to glean from this text what you would have for our lives. Be with myself, Lord, as I speak. Guard my mind, my mouth, and my heart, Lord, that what comes from me would be solely from you, for your glory alone. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So for those of you who may be new, a special welcome to you. We have been going through the book of Exodus through a series that we have titled Exodus, Exit to Promise and Purpose. We've been diving into this story of the Israelites in their slavery to the Egyptians. And God has been raising up this deliverer by the name of Moses. Pastor Tim concluded last week in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. He told us about remembering what God has done through the gospel. 
that God offers salvation, redemption, adoption, and an inheritance. I think verse 7 wraps it up pretty nicely at the start. It says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. We pick it up then this week with chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. If you have your Bibles, please follow along. If not, the words will be on the screen for you. Starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that had turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. 
And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. I don't know if any of you know how operas work. So prior to the start of each show, the director will take the singers aside and he will tell them the story of the opera. Since most operas are sung in a different language, he will give them an overview of what's going to happen and what roles they're going to play. Happy peasants, angry peasants, happy townspeople, angry townspeople. You get the idea. Without his overview, however, it would be difficult to make sense of the opera. With the overview, the chorus members know what they're supposed to do, how they are supposed to act. The director lays it out, and the singers follow his instructions. And throughout the opera, the action builds towards a stunning and beautiful conclusion. Along the way, there are evil characters who do horrid things, and we can struggle to, to make sense of what's happening. But all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, works toward a beautiful musical conclusion. It's often the final chorus that the audience members are humming as they leave the theater. The bottom line is the director knows the story before it happens. He gives the singers their roles to play, and if played correctly, brings the opera to completion. See, up to this point, Moses had been arguing with God. However, at the beginning of verse 7, that changes. The argument stops. Moses decides, I'm all in. I will do as you say. He finally applies himself to the mission that he's been given. And so God tells Moses that Pharaoh's part is that he's not going to give in. He clarifies, though, that that's not going to stop God that he's still going to bring his people out of Egypt. See, God is the director of this drama. He has given Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh their lines. And in the end, even though getting there is very difficult, the story comes to an amazing, miraculous conclusion where the Israelites are freed 
And the Egyptians fall on their knees and recognize that Yahweh, God, is the Lord. It's in verse 5 that we see our main point for this entire section of Exodus. Verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch my hand out against Egypt and bring my people out of Israel, out from them. So you will know that I am the Lord. It all hinges on this idea. You will know that I am the Lord. We saw this idea hinted at as well last week in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. It says, you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. See, God desires to be known and worshipped. And as the great director, he is the only one worthy to be worshipped. God is going to use the coming plagues to reveal his characteristics to both the Egyptians and to the Hebrews. For the Hebrews, it's going to be the promises that God has made to them that's going to reveal his character. But for the Egyptians, it's going to be the pouring out of God's wrath. God's name will be glorified in both those who are saved and those who perish. So we'll be looking at three specific characteristics of God that are on display in this passage. First, God shows his power through both man's obedience and disobedience. God shows his power through both man's obedience and disobedience. We see in verse 6 that Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord commanded them. They followed their lines perfectly. By their obedience, God makes himself and his power known to Pharaoh. In verse 1, God tells Moses that he will act as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron will act as his prophet. Here, the word prophet means spokesperson. So Moses is performing the miracles. And Aaron is announcing, explaining, and threatening Pharaoh with them. Note here, though, that Moses does not become a god. But God grants him power and authority. Everything that Moses is able to do is directly commissioned by God. In verse 4, God tells Moses that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened and that he will not listen. In response, God will lay his hand on Egypt and bring out his people by great acts of judgment. So not only do we see God's power through the obedience of Moses and Aaron, but it's also through the disobedience of Pharaoh that God will make himself known to the Egyptians. See, the Egyptians would have seen Pharaoh as a god. When we're punished, it comes from someone in authority over us, right? 
Kids are punished by parents. Students are punished by teachers and principals. Workers are punished by bosses. Criminals are punished by the government. And sinners, even ones who rule over their people as a god, are punished by the true God. See, by punishing the defiance of Pharaoh, God shows his power over Pharaoh and thus his power over the Egyptians. None of their false gods can stand up to the one true God. So first, God shows his power through both man's obedience and disobedience. Second, God shows his supremacy by humiliating the Egyptian gods. God shows his supremacy by humiliating the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians had so many gods. I kind of was disillusioned before I went into looking into this. I thought, you know, maybe a hundred. No, it's way more than that. They have gods for everything. They even have multiple gods for the same exact thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that kind of bizarre, especially in a culture that we live today where more and more people are more likely to have no god than to have multiple gods. So in Moses' first display to Pharaoh, he tells Aaron to throw down his staff, and it turns into a serpent. So this snake was mighty. It uses the same Hebrew word that is used other places in the Old Testament for a great sea serpent. It's likely that this snake was probably a cobra. A cobra is large, it is dangerous, and it is very venomous. See, these snakes, and namely the cobra, captivated the Egyptians. Pharaoh even wore one on his head as a symbol of his authority. See, snakes are meant to be feared, and Pharaoh was meant to be feared. So the Egyptians, from what I could find, had three prominent cobra gods. One was Mertziger, a protector god who guards the Valley of the Kings where all of the pharaohs are buried. Another, Wajit, was the protector of Lower Egypt. And then we had Renutet, who was a god for rearing children, protection in raising children. So, so all of these cobra gods involve protection in one way or another. However, what do we see from this miracle? The Egyptian sorcerers are also able to make snakes from staves. But the serpent made from Aaron's staff devours the Egyptians. These so-called gods of protection couldn't even protect themselves from the supremacy of the true God. However, Pharaoh leaves this encounter unimpressed and unmoved. His heart is hardened, and he refuses to listen to Moses and Aaron. 
So, so God begins the series of plagues. Since Pharaoh's heart has hardened, not only will God pour out his wrath on Pharaoh, but on all of his people as well for their disobedience, their worship of idols. This is where we begin to see God reveal himself through the plagues. We begin with the first plague in verse 14. All of the water of the Nile, even the water that's contained in wooden and stone bowls in people's houses, maybe in their cupboard, it all turns to blood. The, the Hebrew word used here for shall turn is hafach. And it means a complete alteration. See, the water didn't just look like blood or smell like blood. It was blood, literally. This again shows how God is above and beyond the gods of Egypt, putting them to open shame and humiliation. See, I was able to find six gods that were closely related to the Nile River. There was Hapi and Satis. Both of them were gods of the annual flooding of the Nile River that would bring life to the soil so that the Egyptians could grow their crops. As well as Sirius, who was the god to announce the flooding was coming. There was Anquet, a goddess of fertility. Sobek, a crocodile god who was the god of water and medicine. And there was even just a normal Nile perch. Just a perch. And it was sacred and worshipped because it was the pet of one of the other hundreds of gods. All of these gods deal with life. The life that the Nile brings to the Egyptians. God shows his supremacy over them by taking the very thing that gives life and turning it into blood. Killing all of the fish and causing the Nile to stink so bad that the Egyptians didn't dare to get too close. So they dug wells instead to get water. Interestingly enough, Scripture does not mention if the Hebrews were affected by this or not. It makes it clear that the Egyptians were. However, it doesn't say anything about the Hebrews. So I think it's safe for us to assume that the Hebrews had plenty of fresh, clean drinking water from one source or another. There's still more for us to learn from this plague, though. See, God shows his power through man's obedience and disobedience. He shows his supremacy by humiliating the Egyptian gods. And thirdly, God shows his justice by revealing the blood required to pay for sin. God shows his justice by revealing the blood required to pay for sin. See, I think there's something we can glean here from the use of blood. I believe there's a significance to the fact that the only two plagues 
to involve blood are the first and the last. It may be that God uses this first plague as a picture and a forewarning. See, the blood throughout the land of Egypt shows the punishment required for the sins of the Egyptians. There was the worship of idols. They're denying God the worship that he deserves. As well as taking innocent life. Remember, we read back earlier in Exodus that one of the pharaohs had ordered that the sons of Hebrews be cast into the Nile River. And then finally, there's the sin of Pharaoh for denying a direct command of God. Let my people go. All of this sin requires a blood payment. In the first plague, God shows the Egyptians the extent of the payment required. He's also foreshadowing the events of the last plague, where a great price will be paid for the Egyptians' disobedience. So we ourselves as well can learn from this plague. This plague points us toward the gospel. See, the blood required for the Egyptians for their sin is the same as the blood required of us for our sin. We deserve to be eternally condemned for our disobedience against a perfectly holy and righteous God. But God, in his love for us, made a way for us to be reconciled to him. That Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, stepped down out of heaven to be born as a baby into the mess that we had turned creation into by our sin. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. And he died a substitutionary death to pay the price for our sin that we could not pay. See, because of his perfection, he did not stay dead, but was raised from the dead, showing his victory over sin and death. All this so that if we put our trust and hope in what Jesus accomplished in our place to save us and nothing else, then our sin is paid for and we are made righteous in the sight of God. And we are able to be called children of God. When God the Father looks at us to judge us, he does not see us, but sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. We are fortunate that God decided to reveal himself to us, not through plagues, but through Jesus Christ.
So what does all this mean for us? How does the way God reveal him, revealed himself to ancient Egyptians and ancient Hebrews have to do with our lives today? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Three points of application for us this morning. First, we strive to live in obedience to the word. We strive to live in obedience to the word. See, just like ancient Egypt, God will be glorified either by our obedience or our disobedience. Personally, I think it's better to be on the winning side. You need to obey the director or you get fired, right? It's more than that, though. It's more than that. We obey not just because we want to avoid punishment, but the real substance to our obedience is remembering that God, what God has done for us through Christ. We obey as a result of our salvation. It is a response to an overwhelming grace that we did not earn. It's an act of worship to God who greatly deserves to be worshipped. Paul says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Our obedience shows the world who God is and who we are in him. Jesus himself told us in John chapter 3, ver- 13, verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if we are known by our love, and our love is strengthened by our obedience to the truth, then we better obey. So firstly, we strive to live in obedience to the word. Second, we trust in the supremacy of of our God. We trust in the supremacy of our God. It's no surprise that we will face trouble in this life. Not only is there trouble from sin, but we are also told in the later half of John 16:33 that we will have trials in this life. That we will struggle And we will face persecution just because we belong to Christ. However, we can trust in our supreme God. See, John 16.33 also says, But take heart, I, speaking of Jesus, have overcome the world. Our God, who is perfectly good, is also all-powerful, all-knowing, and completely in control. He will work any situation for our good and for his glory. We can trust in his plan, even if we don't know what it is. 
even if it feels like it's in a different language. Because just as the director knows the entire story of the opera, our God is directing the entire story. So where do we find our hope? Who do we look to to help us become good actors? Christ. Christ is the only one who we can have hope in. Everything else will fail us. Our spouse, our jobs, our hobbies, our children, each and every one of them will fail us at one point or another. See, we don't want to make the same mistake of having our hope in something else like the Egyptians did. They hoped in the Nile. See how well that turned out for them. We need to place our hope solely on Christ. So first, we strive to live in obedience to the word. Second, we trust in the supremacy of our God. And thirdly, we seek to know God more. We seek to know God more. See, God has revealed himself to us through his word. We, we are blessed to have a Bible that is completely translated into a language that we can understand and to live in a country where we are free to study and worship. It's not the case everywhere. A couple statistics for you. There are 2,115 languages that still have no scripture at all. 1,138 languages that have some sections of scripture. A couple stories here and there. 1,548 languages have just the New Testament. In total, there are 7,353 languages in the world. And the complete Bible exists in only 698 of them. We have been given an opportunity, and we should take advantage of it. By learning more about who God is through his word, we deepen our love for him. This will help us to live lives set apart from the rest of the world. Knowing and loving God more will help us to avoid making other things, our money, our significant others, our careers, our possessions, into idols that take our attention off of God. By knowing God more, we will also be able to spot counterfeits, like the counterfeit acts of the Egyptian magicians. We'll be able to recognize when we hear a gospel that sounds a little off, or when we see that television pastor and he says something that just doesn't seem quite right. We'll be better able to understand how our God is different from the gods of Jehovah's Witnesses, of Mormons, and of Muslims.
and we'll be better able to present the gospel that we say we believe to unbelievers. So in conclusion, just as an opera is directed by a director who knows the whole story, so everything in reality is directed by our powerful, supreme, and just God. In his word, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we find the part that we're supposed to play. We should strive to live in obedience as good actors, trust in his supremacy as the director, and seek to know him more so that we can understand how to continue to grow and serve him. And it's by our example, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will make it known to the world that Yahweh, that Jesus, is the Lord by living out the gospel in everything that we do. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we, we recognize that we fall short, that we do not hit the mark of your standard for us. But God, we praise you and we thank you that you have made a way for us through Jesus. That it's not about what we do, but Lord, that it's about what you have done for us. Help us to live in light of that. Help us to respond with obedience, just as Moses and Aaron did. And Lord, help us to, to share that gift with others. That we would not leave the people in their sin, but that we would make known to them your love. Father, we thank you for what you have done. Give us the strength to obey. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. It's in your Holy Son, Christ's name that we pray. Amen.